This morning we're continuing our Advent Christmas series entitled Every Family Needs a Stable Foundation. We know that there is no other foundation by which a family must be built upon than the foundation of Jesus Christ. We know that, right? There is no other foundation besides the foundation of Jesus Christ that a family must be built upon. I love what Joshua said after he led the Israelites into the promised land. He gathered up each of the leaders from each tribe, and he made this declaration before each one. He said, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And my prayer for each and every one of us in this room is that we will make that same declaration that we will serve the Lord. This morning, If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And yes, this is a genealogy sermon. So some of you probably over the last week have been trying to figure out how in the world is he going to pull off a genealogy sermon. And I want you to know right now, your guess is as good as mine, okay? I'm just kidding with you, but um, if you're like me, Oftentimes, as you read through God's Word, and you come across one set of genealogy, a set of the begats, what do you do? You either quickly skim over that section of Scripture, or you just simply skip that section of Scripture. My prayer for each of us this this morning is that we realize that every name that is mentioned in this genealogy played a significant role as being a part of the historical line of Jesus Christ. There was a down-and-out man who was without a home and without a job, and so he got a room at a local motel, and he found a Gideon's Bible. He opened it up to the introduction to the content section, and he realized that he needed a, a job. So he read the book of Job. And as a result of reading the book of Job, this man trusted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Ron Blankley, a former area director for Campus Crusade for Christ, was walking through the student union at the University of Pennsylvania and saw a student reading the Bible. He remembered Philip's approach to the Ethiopian, so he walked over to the student, introduced himself, and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And the young man said, Well, I'm reading through Matthew's genealogy, and I'm comparing it to Luke's genealogy, and I don't know what I'm reading. And so Mr. Blankley um, sat down and explained to him what he was reading, and as a result, this man trusted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. This morning, what I want each of us to understand and realize, and I've shared this with you before. But God's word is more than just ink on a page. It's the breath of God on a page. If you remember back in our word sermon um, several months ago, we walked through that and we talked about that. Every book, every chapter, every verse, every word found in God's word is the inspired word of God. You know that, right? You're aware of that, right? 
We read in, 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 in Timothy, Paul wrote to young Timothy and said this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then in the book of Hebrews we read, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and a marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. All of God's word is the inspired word of God, even the begats, even the genealogies. Every word within God's word is the inspired word of God. And as we will see this morning, as we walk through Matthew's genealogy, this is a history of God's people from their beginning with Abraham to David to the coming of the Messiah. One commentator, commentator says in Matthew chapter 1, it is the lineage of salvation's history. It is the lineage of salvation history. So let's begin reading in Matthew chapter 1. We'll look at verses 1 through 17 together, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, there may be a name or 10 that I butcher as we read through this, so just be aware of that. We read in beginning in verse 1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abihai. Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, I'm sorry, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatel, and Sheatel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abud, Abud, the father of Elakim, Elakim, the father of Azer, Azer, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elud, and Elud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matin, and Matin, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from David, from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. I am not quite as good as the gentleman that sang that song a second ago. Um, notice point number one this morning is this. A faith rooted in history. A faith rooted in history. The book of the genealogy, verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Within the opening pages of the book of Matthew, Matthew sets out to establish Jesus' right to the throne 
to the, to the throne of Israel. In fact, throughout Matthew's gospel, that is precisely what he sought to do. He sought to establish and prove that Jesus Christ was the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited Savior. This is why there are more quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Matthew than any other gospel. Matthew wanted his readers to see that through Jesus, hundreds of prophecies were being fulfilled. He also wanted his readers to know that Jesus indeed was the rightful heir of the throne of Israel, of the throne of God. Scripture was clear. Israel's king, according to Deuteronomy 17.15, had to be a Jew and not a foreigner. And according to 2 Samuel 7.14, a king had to be a descendant of David. When Jesus was born, who was the king of Israel at the time? Y'all remember? It was King Herod. Did you know that King Herod was not qualified to be the king of Israel? First of all, he was not a Jew. He was an Edomite, and he only married a woman who was a Jew, and he was not of the Davidic line. He was appointed king by Caesar, the emperor of Rome. That's how King Herod became king of Israel. He didn't, he didn't deserve to be the king. He definitely was not biblically qualified to be the king. King Herod was a ruthless king. He, he was kind of one of those kings that was, um, he became all things to all people. Yes, he did rebuild the temple, but he only rebuilt the temple so that he could gain favor with, with, um, with the Jews. And he, he, if you've ever been to Israel and ever been to Caesarea, you know that he is responsible for building that great city that at one time housed about 120,000 people. He built that for Caesar himself. He, he became all things to all people, basically, is who Herod was. He was a ruthless king. He was a, he was a horrible man. And if you crossed him, he would kill you. And in fact, he killed many of his family members who tried to overthrow his kingdom. Uh, I know that you are familiar with um, the encounter that the wise men have with King Herod. The wise men come seeking out the king, seeking out Jesus. And Herod got wind of this. And what did Herod do? Herod summoned the wise men to come to him. And he tells them that when you find Jesus, come back and report to me because I too want to worship the king. Well, we know that King Herod didn't want to worship Jesus. He wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus um, um, threatened his throne. And so what did King Herod do? King Herod issued for the death of every child, every male child, two years and younger, born in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. King Herod was a ruthless man. Jesus was the rightful heir of the throne of Israel. And that's what Matthew wanted his readers to know and understand. John MacArthur in his commentary referring to chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew stated this, To any honest observer, and certainly to Jews who knew and believed their own scriptures, these two chapters vindicate Jesus' claim before Pilate. You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world.
Jesus came to this earth to establish his heavenly kingdom, to establish his heavenly reign here on earth. As we walk through this chapter together, notice how Matthew begins his book. You know, there's no question about who the book of Matthew is about. The book of Matthew is all about Jesus Christ. Notice how he begins this chapter. He said, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ. Translated the book of genealogy, the book of Genesis, or the book of of beginnings. Matthew wanted his readers to understand that history forever changed the day that Jesus Christ was born. You know that, right? The day that Jesus Christ burst into human history, the world forever changed. Your life forever changed. My life forever changed. The first century forever changed. And every generation since and every generation after us forever changed the moment that God the Father sent his son Jesus Christ to this earth to come as he was born of a virgin, lived his life perfectly, went to the cross and died for our sins. Notice what Matthew does. Matthew breaks up chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 into three sections, each containing 14 generations. Each of these sections cover people during three key time periods within Israel's history. We read in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What I want us to do is just briefly look at these generations, what happened during each one of these generations. From the first generation is a generation from Abraham to David. You probably could say that this is, of all of the generations, um, Israel's um, greatest period um, of its existence. This would be um, the time in which Abraham was called and appointed to be the father of the Jews. It would be a time of promise. There's the Abrahamic covenant. There would be a time of enslavement, 400 years in Egypt. It would be a time of wandering. There would be 40 years that they would wander around in the desert. But it would be a time of law-giving, a time of deliverance where the Israelites are given the promised land. It would be a time of conquest and a time of great victory as the Israelites conquered the promised land. Notice the next 14 generations. This is um, from David to the deportation. And this would be the time of the kings. Most of these kings were extremely wicked. We know that, that David and Solomon were, were the two greatest kings within Israel's history. And it kind of goes downhill from there. During this time, it would be a time of decline, a time of apostasy, a time of tragedy, a time of defeat, a time of conquest. It would be during this time period that the Israelites, Israelites would be brought into Babylon as slaves. And it would also be during this time period that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed as well as the temple. And then the final um, 14 generations is, is without a doubt the darkest period within Israel's history. It would be from the time of the deportation to Christ. It would be a time of exile and captivity. It was a time of darkness. And it would also be a time when, when for the most 
apart, Israel had no prophet. They had no leader. They had no one that represented the voice of God. So it was a very, very dark time within Israel's history. And then that leads up to the birth of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Notice point number two this morning is this. A faith expressing God's grace. When it comes to our family trees, most of us in this room have some pretty shady characters in it, don't we? If you... um, Look back to probably just a matter of, of, of days ago around your Thanksgiving table, there were probably a few shady characters around that table. There's probably a couple of cousins that, that, that were a little bit on, they're a little bit on the crazy side, right? How many of you have those people in your family? Okay, the person sitting beside you does not count, okay? Danny, the person up here does not count, all right? All of us have some shady characters within our past. If we were to reach back far enough within our, our history, there would be some outlaws. There would be some, some criminals. There would be some murderers, probably. There would be some adulterers. There would be some thieves. And this list could go on and on and on. We would expect within our family tree for there to be some, some wild children some shady characters, some people with some messed up past. But when we think about King Jesus' genealogy, when we think about his family tree, we don't think about a, a, a genealogy that was full of shady characters, do we? When we think about Jesus' family tree, when we think about his genealogy, we think that, that the God who spoke all things into existence and gave us the breath of life, that his family tree should be a perfect family tree. There should be no shady characters, but that's not the case at all. There are some shady characters within Jesus' family tree, within his genealogy, as we read a second ago. In his line, we read that there are murderers, that there are adulterers, that there are prostitutes, that there are idol worshipers, that there are uh, some wicked and evil kings that make up the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It would be from this line of sinners, though, that God would burst into human history. What a great picture of grace. You and I serve a gracious God, don't we? We serve a gracious God that loved us so much that he left heaven and came to this earth and dwelt amongst us. What I want us to do is I want us to look at a few names that Matthew mentions in Jesus' family tree. In verse 1, let's just start at the top. We read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's start with King David, since David is the first name that Matthew mentions. David is listed first because Matthew wanted to establish the royal right of Jesus to the throne before he established anything else within this family tree. We know that David was not a perfect person. David was far from perfect. We're familiar that with the affair that he had with Bathsheba. And as a result of that affair, things just quickly spiraled out of control. He, he, he calls for Uriah, um, and ultimately Uriah didn't do the things that David wanted him to do. And so what did he do? He sent 
Uriah to the front lines, to the battlefield. And as a result of that, Uriah lost his life. David made many mistakes, as has you, have, have you and I. We've made many, many mistakes in our lives. But the thing that I love about King David is the words that God the Father said about David. David was a man after his own heart. Regardless of our past mistakes, we serve a God that's a God of grace. And he can forgive us and restore us. And it would be from David's line that the king of the universe would burst into human history. In Isaiah chapter 9 we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David. And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. David made mistakes, but God restored him and used him in a mighty way. Notice the next person. Not only does Matthew connect Jesus to King David, but he reaches back even further to Abraham. Jesus is from the seed of Abraham, the one whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God the Father said this to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham, though found faithful in Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham made mistakes as well. If you recall, on two separate occasions, Abraham lied about his wife Sarah. He said to two pagan kings that she is not my wife, but who was she? He, he said that she is my sister on two different occasions. Well, what this did is this um, put Sarah's life in danger, put Abraham's life in danger, and, and, and it, it spoke very um, negatively about the God that Abraham worshipped and served and the God that led Abraham um, on his journey. These two men certainly had shortcomings, but God made Abraham the father of his chosen people and David the father of the royal line from whom Christ Jesus would be born. You know, we could walk through each one of these people listed in this genealogy, but we'd be here first of all all day. But one thing that we would find about every single one of them is that they made mistakes. Every single one of them made mistakes. What I want us to do, though, is I want to focus on a few of these women that are listed in this genealogy. I don't know if you realize this or not, but, but, but usually women were not included in genealogy. And Matthew includes five women. Um, one of those would be Mary, the mother of Jesus. The other four women, though, were very shady women. They had a very sordid past. And, and I want us to know that God is a God of grace. And he takes us warts and all, doesn't he? And he can use us and redeem us and graft us into his family tree. Notice a few of these women. First of all, the first woman that is mentioned is Tamar. You realize that Tamar presented herself 
as a prostitute to her father-in-law, Judah. And as a result, she gave birth to two boys, Perez and Zerah. And both of them are listed in this family tree. The next woman that Matthew mentions is a, is a woman by the name of Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute within the city of Jericho. And when the spies came into the land to, 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 to scout it out, they went into Jericho. And Rahab actually hid them from the king who sought to kill them. And as a result of this... When the Israelites marched around the city of Jericho that final day seven times and they shouted and the walls of that city fell, every portion of that wall fell with the exception of one portion. And that would be where Rahab's house was. And within Rahab's house, she was saved as well as her family was protected. They were covered and protected by God's graciousness. God's Grace would not only spare Rahab and her family, but she would be grafted into the family line of Jesus Christ. She would become the great-great-grandmother of King David. And then another woman that is mentioned is Ruth. Ruth is one of my wife's favorite biblical characters. Ruth was a Gentile Moabite. And and after the death of her father-in-law and her husband, She would follow Naomi back from Moab to Bethlehem. And and Naomi tried to get Ruth to remain in Moab with her people so that she could marry another Moabite. But Ruth said this in Ruth 1.16. She says, it says, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth also would be grafted into the messianic line whenever she married Boaz. And notice this. They would have a son and name him Obed. Obed would have a son and name him Jesse. And Jesse would be the father of King David. I mean, this is good stuff that we're reading this morning. The last woman listed besides Mary had no name at all. She is simply known as the wife of Uriah. And we know who the wife of Uriah was. It was Bathsheba. And Bathsheba would become part of the messianic line as a result of an affair that she had with King David. They would have a son, and that son would die. They would have another son, name him Solomon. And Solomon would be the king after his father, King David. Folks, we could continue to walk through this list and name indiscretion after indiscretion, person after person, but I do not think that is what God wants us to do this morning. These men and women, I believe, are not listed because of their failure, but they are listed because of God's grace. Each one of these these men and women that are listed a part of Jesus' messianic line are in there because they give us a great picture of God's grace and God's redemption within Israel's history. They're listed to show us that God can take the worst of all offenders and redeem them and save them and use them for his great good. That goes for each and every one of us in this room. If you are a believer in this room this morning, you were saved by God for God. 
If you are not a believer in this room, this this world probably tells you that you are a worthless individual. But I want you to know right now that you are far from worthless. Regardless of your past, you can become a child of the king this morning. And you can be grafted into the family of God. You can become a child of God this morning. And you can become an heir of Christ. The third and final point this morning is this. A faith focused on the Messiah. A faith focused on the Messiah. In verse 16 we read, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. In Matthew 1, 1 through 17, we are given a picture of the birth of a nation, the birth of an earthly king, and the birth of the kingdom of God within human history. The kingdom of heaven is each and every one of ours to inherit. It is available to us to inherit. As we looked at the Beatitudes several weeks ago, we know that is the case. In John 1.12 we read, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Every single person that calls out to Jesus and asks Jesus to forgive them of their sins and makes the confession that Jesus is Lord of their lives and Savior of their lives. Scripture is clear that you can become a child of God. Think about how huge Christ coming to earth actually was. He left heaven full of all of its glory, all of its grandeur. He left heaven full of all of its perfection. He came to this earth and was born amongst sinners into a family of sinners. Yet Jesus would live a perfect life, a sinless life. And he did that in order to redeem you and I from our sins, in order to save you and I. He literally stepped out of heaven and stripped himself of his heavenly glory and clothed himself with humanity in order for you and I to have an opportunity to come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. There's an illustration that talks about King James V of Scotland. And it says he would on occasion lay aside his royal robe as king and put on the simple robe of a peasant. In such a disguise, he was able to move freely about the land, making friends with ordinary folk, entering into their difficulties, appreciating their handicaps, sympathizing with them in their sorrow. And when as king he sat again upon the throne, he was better able to rule over them with fatherly compassion and mercy. Though he put off a royal robe and took on a beggar's coat, his royalty remained. He did not cease to be a king. When Jesus Christ left heaven full of all of its glory, And he left heaven and came to this earth. He literally put on the the coat of a beggar. He put on the coat of a servant. And he lived this life perfectly so that you and I could come to faith in him. We could trust in him as our Lord and Savior. 
In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here is the reality. There is a coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. My question for each of us in this morning, uh, for each of us this morning is this. Has your knee bowed and have you confessed Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? Scripture is clear. This will happen. It's going to happen on this side of eternity or it's going to happen on the other side of eternity. And if it happens on the other side of eternity, understand this. You will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Hell is a real place, my friends. It is a real place. And if you have not ever trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you this morning to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. I want to invite you this morning to to experience the grafting into the messianic line of Jesus Christ. Today, you may not be a part of the kingdom of heaven, but If you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, this morning you can become a child of God and you can be grafted into the messianic line. You can become a co-heir with Christ. Let's stand together this morning. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And if you are here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, I want to invite you, when I say amen, to come and make the greatest decision that you could ever make. If you are here this morning, you've been visiting this church a while, and the Lord's leading you to become a part of this faith family, we invite you to come. If there's a decision you need to make, you come when I say amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you this morning thanking you, Lord Jesus, for every word that is in your word. Father, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are able to read of your genealogy. We're able to see that that that. Men and women make up the genealogy that led to you that were less than perfect. In fact, they were far from perfect in many cases, as each and every one of us in this room are. But Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you for the picture of grace that's found in Matthew 1, 1 through 17, and the picture of grace that we find throughout your word. And we thank you for reaching down into human history and bursting upon the scene to live and die for us so that we too can live eternally with you in heaven. Lord Jesus, if there is a decision that needs to be made in this room this morning, Lord, I pray that you will just speak to hearts. If there's someone here that does not have a relationship with you, may this morning be the morning that they trust you as their Lord and Savior. 
there's a family here that's been visiting a while and you're leading them to become a part of this faith family, Lord, we invite them to come and make this their church home. Father, whichever decision needs to be made, Lord Jesus, we pray that you'll draw people this morning. Lord, be with us now during this invitation song and speak to each one of our hearts. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.